you were angry. No, you can't pay, pay me, I was angry. I was it. I was in a position where I had to be controlled, or controlled professionalism. I wasn't angry because I stayed up. Jacked as non-responsive. Overruled, overruled. Hello and welcome to TNT. I'm your host, Micah McKenzie, where I give you the spill on all things political, pop culture, and societal issues. Today, we're going to be talking about the first week of the criminal trial against former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. In today's episode, I really just want to highlight some of the tactics that Chauvin's defense team is using to prove his innocence in this case. We're also going to be talking about how the prosecution's evidence and witnesses are disproving those tactics. And I really want to pose the question, are Nelson's tactics actually beneficial to Chauvin's defense? We have a lot to get into today, so let's jump right on in with our WatchPot moment. Watched pot never boils. So typically when we are looking at criminal court cases with the charges dealing with or surrounding police misconduct, we typically see that the defense uses more defensive-like tactics. However, as I was watching the live stream, I noticed that the defense seemed to be taking more of an offensive stance, which is weird considering that the burden of guilt or the job of proving guilt beyond unreasonable doubt is on the prosecution side. The overall arcing theme of the defense that I noticed while watching the live stream was that Derek Chauvin's use of force was justifiable, even though it did end in death because of this person or X factors, which is typically unusual because in these cases regarding police misconduct, we typically see the defense comes up and says this force was justifiable because it is standard police procedure or there were extenuating circumstances that allowed the officer to, uh, for lack of a better word, improvise or go off the book. But the defense seems to be placing blame on people and circumstances that really have nothing to do with the actual arrest that took place. And so I have boiled down those shifts and tactics to these four main points. So number one is the use of just force. The defense is arguing that Derek Chauvin's use of force against George Floyd, although it ended in murder, was justifiable because it was by the book, Police Training. Number two, the characterization of George Floyd as a villain or someone that was up to no good and was difficult during the arrest and therefore that force was justifiable because it was needed to subdue his difficultness. Number three, Derek Chauvin couldn't change his course of action because he was distracted by the crowd. 
that had gathered while he was kneeling on top of George Floyd's neck. And number four, they then further take it a step further from uh, number three in saying that everyone in the crowd was angry and posed a physical threat to Derek Chauvin. And so he thought it would be best for him to continue what he was doing instead of changing his course of action. And we're going to go in and explain some of the pieces of evidence and witness statements that the prosecution uses to debunk these tactics. But I also want to highlight some key new information that resulted from witness statements and pieces of evidence that were presented in court this week. Number one, we learned that there were multiple people at the scene at the murder of George Floyd that called the police on the police during and after his murder. Number two, we learned that George Floyd was pronounced dead on the scene. Paramedics even claimed that he had most definitely died before they had even arrived at the scene. And despite paramedic efforts, George Floyd was never revived, either at the scene, in the ambulance, or at the hospital. And number three, we learned that Derek Chauvin never mentions kneeling on top of George Floyd's neck in his official police report of George Floyd's arrest. Throw it up, throw it up. Watch it all fall out. Bow it up, bow it up. That's how we ball out. Throw it up, throw it up. Watch it all fall out. So now that I have given you guys sort of where the defense is coming from, um, I want to present some of the evidence that the prosecution provided in order to debunk some of the arguments that the defense put up. So the first one, like I said, the defense argued that Derek Chauvin's use of force was justifiable. And one of the key witnesses that the prosecution used in debunking this argument was Chief Homicide Detective Richard Zimmerman. Now, this name may sound familiar, especially if you are a fan of The First 48. Richard Zimmerman has made an appearance on that show, Uh, but he was extremely important uh, because Judge Cahill ruled that based off of his training and such high rank, he would be able to justify whether or not Uh, Derek Chauvin's use of force was justifiable. Now, we know that police officers are allowed to use some sort of force or violence should the situation call for it. But Chief Detective Zimmerman makes a point in saying that justifiable force can only be determined in two ways. One, if a police officer is wearing a body cam, higher-ups have to look at the body cam footage to see what was the catalyst event that caused that force to be necessary. And then then they have to look at how the officer performed to determine whether or not that level of force was justifiable or excessive. The other way that force can be determined that if in the case that there is no body cam footage, um, higher ups then interview the police officer to see what happened and they go over the formal written report that is often made by the arresting officer. So option number two can sometimes be very biased because we know that people can leave things out of reports. But as I said, Chief Detective Zimmerman was allowed to determine on the stand whether or not he thought that Chauvin's use of force was justifiable or excessive. And he claimed that in his opinion, it was absolutely unnecessary and ruled it excessive force. And he was able to make that determination 
through watching the body cam footage and the footage of multiple witnesses who filmed the murder. Um, But he also highlights the missteps that Chauvin took as he was arresting and murdering George Floyd. Chief Detective Zimmerman mentions the importance of the hobble method. Now, Now, the hobble method is when after you have handcuffed someone, if they are in a prone position, meaning they are lying on the ground face down with their hands handcuffed behind their back, it is very important to either roll the suspect on their side or have them sit up. So that way they are not restricting their airway because you are lying on your chest facing the ground. Because your arms are behind you, the muscles in your chest are straining. So it makes it more difficult to breathe. So that is extremely important that the hobble method is used. And as we saw in the video, Derek Chauvin did everything but use the hobble method while George Floyd was handcuffed. Another key witness that the prosecution brings in is Donald Williams, who is a trained professional MMA fighter. Now, he was also a witness that just so happened to be in the Cut Foods area while the arrest of George Floyd was taking place. He also took a video of the arrest, and he also was one of the witnesses that called 911 on the police after George Floyd was rushed away in the ambulance. Donald Williams' testimony is important because as an MMA fighter, he has specific training in the different types of chokeholds that can be lethal to a person. And so in Donald Williams' video of the crime scene, you can hear him tell Derek Chauvin that you need to get off of him because you're using a blood choke or a kill choke, which can be lethal if they are prolonged. Now, Blood chokes are chokes that restrict blood circulation, and that can be damaging because the body receives oxygen through the bloodstream. So if the blood is not moving, you cannot get oxygen to your heart and other parts of your body. And a kill choke is basically a strangulation choke. So it is blocking the windpipe from accepting air to bring into the body. The next argument that the prosecution debunks is the attack on George Floyd's character. The defense had painted him as a hardened drug addict who was extremely violent and threatening and the use of force was needed to take him down because he was posing such a threat. Now, we do learn that George Floyd had suffered an opioid overdose in March prior to his murder in May. We know that he had become addicted to opioids after receiving a prescription for some neck and back injuries. But the prosecution brings a very important witness, Courtney Ross, who was George Floyd's girlfriend at the time of his murder to testify. And so she talks about how they met and how he was always very kind, towards her and that he really took care of her and was a really great and stable partner. The prosecution then asks her what her contact information was saved under in his phone. And she responds with mama. Now this is important because if you have seen the video of the arrest, you know that George Floyd was calling for an unidentified character named mama. Now previously, news outlets and the media thought that he was calling for his then deceased mother. But Courtney Ross testified that she believed that George Floyd was calling out to her in that moment, seeing as that was 
his pet name for her. And this is important because the defense had painted George Floyd as someone who was violent because they were experiencing drug-fueled delusions. But knowing that he was calling for Courtney, his living girlfriend, and not his dead deceased mother, strengthens the idea that George Floyd was in fact in his right state of mind when he made the complaints to the officers that he could not breathe and when he was requesting that the officers get off of his neck. So that was very important that Courtney Ross made that distinction in her testimony. The prosecution also debunks this argument that George Floyd died from an overdose from the defense by bringing in paramedic team Seth Bravinger and Derek Smith to testify on the stand. Now, Seth Bravinger and Derek Smith were the two paramedics that responded to the first 911 call and were able to pronounce George Floyd dead at the scene when they discovered that he had no pulse. They also testified that while they were trying to administer medical aid, and it's shown on the video as well, the body cam video, they asked Derek Chauvin to remove his knee from George Floyd's neck twice. And we can see that he did not until they were ready to put George Floyd onto the stretcher. How they debunk this argument is important because on the body cam video from Seth Bravinger, we can see that while Derek Smith is checking for vitals, he checks George Floyd's pupils with a flashlight. And he testifies that he noticed that the pupils were dilated, meaning that his pupils were big. And this is important because when you die from an overdose, your pupils go into what is called meiosis, which means they get really small and pin-like, proving that George Floyd couldn't possibly have died from an overdose, seeing as his pupils were dilated instead of going into meiosis. So I'm going to talk about points three and four together since they are linked. Uh, point number three is that Derek Chauvin couldn't perform his job because he was distracted by the crowd. And point four is that uh, the crowd seemed very angry and riotous and posed a threat to Derek Chauvin's safety. And so because of that, he didn't change his course of action. So through the videos that the prosecution has produced of the arrest, we can see that, yes, there was a crowd during this event. There were multiple people who filmed it, and we can hear the people from the crowd calling Derek Chauvin to get off of George Floyd's neck, to let him go, sit him up, just put him in the car, basically asking Chauvin to change his course of action. We also can hear multiple witnesses who were medical professionals, so in the medical field, nurses, EMTs, offering to give medical assistance as George Floyd claimed that he couldn't breathe. And again, when he stopped moving and there was blood coming out of his mouth and nose. Uh, however, we also see that the officers do not allow any of these professionals to come into the crime scene and give and administer that medical attention. We also see that when they were not allowed into the crime scene, we see that the medical professionals then um, ask to give the officers instructions on how to administer medical aid. And then we see the officers in turn not take up that offer for instruction. 
Now, the defense is saying that the crowd was very distracting and there was no way that Chauvin could think clearly to do his job. I personally think that from the videos that I've seen that the crowd seemed very maintained. I think that the crowd was desperate for Chauvin to change his course of action and to get off of George Floyd. However, no one was posing physical violence. No one tried to physically intervene or push Chauvin around. None of that really happened. Uh, the only thing that was like really aggressive was name calling. And if you're a police officer and you can't do your job because someone is shouting or uh, calling you names, then you really shouldn't be a police officer because you have too much access to deadly weapons like batons, tasers, guns. And if you get distracted by simple things that are going to happen in your environment, seeing that your job is to maintain civil order, which means going into situations where there could be conflict, if you are easily distracted by that conflict, you don't need to be a police officer. Eric Nelson, the lead defense lawyer, tries to paint the crowd as being very angry and opposing physical harm to Derek Chauvin and the other officers at the scene. Now, I think that we need to look at why he chose the word angry to describe the crowd. And if you have time to watch the footage, you can see that he asked each of the witnesses that were there, were you angry? Would you say that the crowd was angry? It's important to note that the majority of this crowd and the majority of the neighborhood where this took place are black and brown. And describing black and brown people as angry is, of course, racist, but it is a lazy, racist, old, tired excuse for white people to use to defend their aggression towards black people and other people of color. And so I think it's very important that we highlight that part of the defense's argument and the fact that they choose angry and the fact that they asked every witness, were you angry or did the crowd seem angry is very important because at the end of the day, whether the crowd was angry or not does not determine how Derek Chauvin should have done his job. I know that that was a lot, but let's take a moment to sip on this. sort of gone through and broken down the defense and prosecution's arguments. I want to talk about some of the witnesses that were called to testify this week. And like I said earlier, there were multiple witnesses that testified on the stand that they called the police on the police, essentially, during and after the murder and arrest of George Floyd. One of those witnesses was Jenna Scurry. And Jenna Scurry was the original 911 dispatcher that was called by the manager of Cup Foods when George Floyd tried to pay for his purchase with a counterfeit $20 bill. And Jenna's testimony is extremely important because she testifies that as a 911 dispatcher, she has access to the street security cams that were in front of Cup Foods. So she was able to see the arrest play out as it was happening. And so when she noticed that 
Derek Chauvin was kneeling on George Floyd's neck. She then called the chief of the Minneapolis police and essentially told him, she was like, look, you can call me a snitch if you want to, but I'm watching the security footage of your police officer and he is definitely using excessive force. Like someone needs to come down to investigate this. And she testifies that Derek Chauvin was on George Floyd's neck for so long that she thought that her computer screen had frozen. And lastly, Genevieve Hansen, who is a firefighter, and because she is a firefighter, she is an EMT. And for those of you all who don't know what an EMT is, um, they are listed as first responders. So they have basic medical training, but they are not as skilled as a paramedic or a doctor. And she just happened to be off duty and came across the arrest as she was walking through the neighborhood. And she testifies that she was watching the arrest and when she saw that George Floyd was no longer moving, meaning he wasn't reacting to painful stimuli, she knew that he had what she called an altered form of consciousness and that he, as a result of that altered consciousness, would need some form of medical attention. So she asked Officer Tao if she could administer that medical aid as she was an EMT. And she claims that Officer Tao told her that she should know better than to get involved with police business if she really was an EMT. Now, this is problematic because as a registered EMT, Genevieve is a first responder, meaning that until an ambulance can come to remove that person from the scene, she's essentially medically responsible for that person should she deem that that person needs medical attention. Genevieve also testifies that she noticed that the ambulance and other EMTs and paramedics took a suspiciously long time, considering that there are three nearby firehouses and EMT stations that could have gotten there in a three to five minute emergency vehicle drive. Now, I also want to highlight that Genevieve's testimony in particular was very testy. And I think that a lot of the jurors or people watching the live stream may find that Genevieve was difficult because I won't say that she was mouthing off to the defense, but when you are a witness, there are certain ways that you have to answer a question and you can't answer a question as if you were normally having a normal conversation. And during her testimony, there were moments where Eric Nelson was obviously visually frustrated with the answers that she was giving. And I personally think that some of that frustration comes from the line of questioning that he was presenting. He was asking a lot of hypothetical questions. And through those questions, it was evident to Genevieve and to me that it appeared that he hadn't really done the necessary research on what exactly an EMT is or what they are required to do to really ask those types of questions to make the points that he was trying to make. There was a moment at the end of the day where Judge Cahill specifically addressed Genevieve and her behavior. And it just kind of put me off a little bit. I'll insert a clip of it here. Do you have the right to ask questions? Your job is to answer. I was finishing my answer. I will determine when your answer is done. But yes, like I said, as a witness, you are required to answer questions in a certain way. And obviously, the way that she was answering the questions 
did not sit well with Eric Nelson or Judge Cahill. But sometimes I think that in watching it, that it may not even be that the witness is answering a question incorrectly. I often think that sometimes lawyers think that uh, the answer to their questions is going to be in their favor, and they just don't like hearing what the witness actually has to say. If the witness is an expert in that area of the field, in this case, Genevieve was an EMT, so she knew what her responsibilities were. She's going to tell you what her responsibilities are as an EMT, what she actually does. She's not going to bend into your hypothetical situations. And I think that that was one thing that was really detrimental to Eric Nelson's tactics and ultimately Chauvin's defense. I'm glad that you hung in there with me, but I hope that you'll stay for the last drops. My take on watching this week's court proceedings is that I want people to remember that despite the defense's tactics of trying to destroy everyone else's credibility. Derek Chauvin is the one who was on trial. Not George Floyd, not the crowd, not Genevieve Hansen, not Donald Williams, not Jenna Scurry. Derek Chauvin is the one who committed a crime and the state has asked him to answer to that crime. He is the one that is on trial. He is the one that the defense's argument should be centered around. And as I was watching this, I think that although Nelson's tactics are not unusual or unexpected. I just felt like I watched so many mistakes, especially when it came to Genevieve Hansen in watching his line of questioning with her. I don't know if maybe he just didn't understand what an EMT does and how they're different from paramedics and other first responders, but I just personally felt that there were a lot of missteps in his line of questioning with her. And a lot of his questions just seemed to be ungrounded or didn't have enough information to really get the answers that he was looking for. Now, we know that Eric Nelson is part of a task force of 12 lawyers that are specifically there to represent police officers who are charged with misconduct. But seeing as the defense team is solely made up of Eric Nelson and his so-called assistant, Amy Ross, and they are up against, I believe the prosecution has used four lawyers alone this week. I just wonder if he is adequately preparing himself for this trial. You know, a lot of people are saying that this trial could be this generation's O.J. Simpson case. And I think that, that argument has some validity. But I just wonder if he is a little in over his head when it comes to trying to tackle this case alone and why he would willingly do so, especially in such a high profile case as this. But I think that either way this verdict comes out, I think that Eric Nelson is going to be damned regardless. He'll be damned if Chauvin is proven guilty and damned if Chauvin is not guilty. I just wonder if Eric Nelson is aware of the public opinion and perception of him. And lastly, we haven't heard from Chauvin yet, but I would really want to know, what does he have to say for himself after watching the video over and over again? And we see, if you watch the court proceedings, we see him taking notes uh, all throughout the trial. 
I want to know what's on that legal pad. Does he stay up all night apologizing to George Floyd for what he did like Darnella Frazier? Or does he sleep like a baby? Only time will tell what Chauvin has to say for himself. But I encourage my listeners to, if you can, watch the footage of the proceedings. If not, I encourage you to stay updated on this topic because this court case is going to really revolutionize how we view the Black Lives Matter movement, how we view police brutality, and could really determine the next steps for police reform. Hi, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. If you haven't already, feel free to follow me at Instagram, at Micah Hinton, and at Micah McKenzie. Remember to DM me or comment any suggestions that you want me to cover here at TNT. I hope you stay tuned for next week's court summary and the next episodes coming out this week. Thank you so much for listening.